My name is John Bamanek. Welcome, welcome again to the Death Labs podcast, where we talk about all things threat and security research, uh, sponsored by NetRich. Joined today by Richard Hummel uh, with NetScout. He is the Senior Manager of Threat Intelligence. Welcome to the program, Richard. Thanks for having me, John. And let me just say, I love the title of the podcast, right? Death Labs. I mean, what's better for nerds like us? Right. You know, and I mean, the acronym stands for something. That's how I got rid of it. Uh, got, got, uh, you know, got away with it. De- detection, engineering, analytics, and threat hunting. You know, I, I poached it from somebody else on social media and then just, you know, name my team that, name the podcast that, and just going off to the races. I'm trying to see if I can work in calling professional services death services. That seems <laughs> to luck on that. too far. Right. You know, I haven't gotten the business cards to update to a new title of cyber mortician working on that. But, uh, you know, baby steps. <laughs> that, that would be awesome. I have to say having a title as cyber mortician, you, you'd be set for life. Right. <laughs> I, I, would, I would be right. So, um, I mean, you know, I have to update LinkedIn from artisanal malware curator or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so tell us a little bit uh, about yourself, Richard. What do you do? Uh, you know, what do you focus in on your research and threat and tell work? Absolutely. So um, I manage the research team here at NetScout. Uh, maybe just a little bit further back. Um, I started in the army back in 2008. I was doing cyber threat intelligence, mostly signals intel when I first came in. But at the time, the army didn't really have cyber analysts. We were kind of late to the game. You know, call it what you will. The army was was delayed in the cyber program, so I did a, a beta program, got certified to do cyber, and pretty much was hooked ever since then. Um, if you had asked me prior to that, I wanted to be a lawyer, and here I am now as a you know senior manager for threat intelligence. So I don't regret any of it. Um, the whole time working nation state, um, once I got out of the military, I did contracting. Every three other agency you can probably name, I've probably worked with them. Um, did uh, working at iSight Partners, FireEye, doing the cybercrime side. Um, and then about five and a half years ago, I came over here to NetScout. Now I'm doing DDoS. So I've got the trifecta. I've got nation state, I've got cybercrime, now I've got DDoS. Um, so it's really kind of cool perspective to have a really well-rounded view of what the threat landscape looks like from uh, more sophisticated adversaries to criminal syndicates, you know, operating out of Russia to now there's DDoS where nine-year-olds in elementary education schools are launching DDoS attacks against their fellow gamers, right? That's it, It's a completely different dichotomy of attacks, uh, but it keeps things interesting. And it also, when you actually look at the threat landscape in the DDoS space, we're talking about an order of magnitude greater than many other cyber threats out there. We talk about you know 13 million attacks on the year, but we're talking about very high threshold, fully validated DDoS attacks, not all of the mundane things that go under the radars for service providers, right? Service provider is not going to care about a 10 kilobit per second attack, but you know what? That's still a DDoS attack. So we could be talking about an order of magnitude of like 100 million to 200 million DDoS attacks every year. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a really interesting playground where we sit, where we can just, we've got this amazing visibility and now we can actually see what adversaries are doing. We can look at the trends. We can figure out, um, is there motivation behind these things? And so I'm finding a lot of fulfillment here, being able to look at the totality of the internet. I think one of the biggest gripes that I had as a security researcher was what happens when it leaves the network, right? You you can do the incident response. No doubt you've done lots of incident response. I mean, death, right? Um, And you're looking internally, you're doing post forensics, you're doing reverse engineering, but what happens when it leaves that network? You, You lose it. There's no visibility there. 
um, that's where we sit, right? We sit in those networks outside of any individual in, individual or any enterprise. We're sitting in that service provider space with that visibility. So now we can actually see that 85 to 90% of all DDoS attacks are actually broadband access users targeting broadband access users. If you were just sitting from an enterprise perspective or one individual user, you would never know that. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a really cool way of looking at the threat landscape. Well, I think you mentioned, right, you know, you've covered the whole gamut of cybercrime and nation state and DDoS is one of the, you know, threats where that that can kind of meet from time to time, you know, where Absolutely. the routine is gamer on gamer, you know, e-violence, right? You know, but <laughs> Good way of saying political it. shenanigans kick off, you know, the cyber shenanigans are, you know, are soon to follow, whether nation sponsored or just, you know, patriotic fervor, right? You know, we see it all the time. Yeah. And we're seeing more of it, um, especially since the advent of the, the Russo-Ukrainian war. I mean, we have seen so much geopolitical hacktivism since then that it, it's quite frankly scary how mm -hmm. much we've seen. And even some of the methodologies that we're seeing, the attacks against websites, so HTTP, HTTPS layer attacks, um, attacks against DNS servers, various other kind of top-level applications has taken off in a way that we've never seen before because a lot of these different groups that are aligned with, you know, uh, pro-nation states, right? So we think Killnet, No Name, Didaja, um, Anonymous Sudan, like all these different groups, they're going after websites. That's what they do, right? They get on Twitter, they get on Telegram and say, hey, we're in this crusade, come with us. We've got a thousand strong, everybody launched an attack against these websites. So naturally, you're gonna see more and more attacks in that space. And it's not just the same old attacks. We're actually seeing some bit of innovation here mm -hmm. where we're seeing some of these groups now are using proxies as their attack infrastructure. It used to be that they would use botnets or they use reflectors amplifiers, but now they're actually going out scanning for open proxies and other types of devices. They're even standing up their own proxies on compromised devices. And then they're launching attacks as if they're from a proxy, which means as an organization, you've got to make a decision. Do I want to allow proxy traffic in my network or do I want to block all of it? Uh, right. And so that, you know, that's that's a security conversation that you have to have. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, you know, one of my favorite, you know, and I don't know that 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 would there would most people call it a DDoS attack, but you know, I would, you know, I guess it's about a year ago, right? Somebody hacked into Yandex Taxi, right? Their Uber equivalent, right? In in Moscow, and then just redirected 10 or 20,000 cabs to basically <laughs> the same chunk of real estate. And Moscow traffic is no joke in the first place, right? You know, we're, right. we're you've got this API world, which is enabling cyber physical problems. And now that's being abused and can be abused to create real world shenanigans as well. So- I mean, it's not any different than other state exhaustion attacks that we see. Right? Mm -hmm. All of these things are designed to overwhelm an application or a service. And this is this is no different, whether it's a redirect or BGP hijacking or whatever it might be, right? You're, you're trying to reroute services or saturate services sufficient that you're denying service to someone. So call it a DDoS attack, a dynamic DDoS attack, adaptive DDoS, you know, whatever it might be, right? It's mm -hmm. same concept. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. So it's it's a wild, new, interesting world that we're creating that manifests in, you know, I guess it's hilarious because I'm on the other side of the planet and I didn't have to deal with it. But I mean, if you're just a <laughs> working Joe trying to get home in time for dinner, you're probably less humorous or a you know, it, worse. And that's just it. The thing is, is 
DDoS isn't one of those things that's like super, let's call it sexy, if I can say sexy, right? It's not really one of those things that everybody would be like, oh man, it's, it's this nation state and he's he's done this vulnerability at zero day and he's hacked in and now he's stolen all this data. Oftentimes people, they hear DDoS and they're like, oh yeah, it's just one of those things. Like, you know, why isn't there like a more emphasis on DDoS attacks? Because they cause so much devastation. And as an individual user, you could probably say, well, I've never been DDoS attacked before. What, what does it matter to me? Even as an enterprise, I've never been DDoS attacked before. I would argue that you have, whether you have been attacked directly or inadvertently, you have been under the guise of a DDoS attack. That could be your mm-hmm. Facebook took longer to load. The image is only half rendered. Your YouTube video is all of a sudden buffering. You have to reset your router because your latency is out the wall. Right. All of these different things are the result of something on the internet having congestion issues. And many of the times that's DDoS attacks. So whether you've been targeted direct or not, you're still experiencing them. Uh, So it's just one of those things I think there needs to be more awareness. So I'm really glad that you had me on the podcast here because we've got to bring more awareness to this. We've proven time and time again that when the community gets together and coordinatedly, we're working on best current practices, implementing various patches or certain things like source address validation is a really good example, right? Mention, yeah. The whole point of volumetric attacks is to spoof traffic. But if you implement source address validation, you can no longer spoof traffic on a network. Right. Something as simple as that, the community coming together and implementing that at scale has had a major impact in the DDoS space. Like major. We're talking 2 million attack difference between volumetric attacks now and what we would call direct path or bot-based attacks all contribute as a result of that community getting together and implementing those BCPs. And so I think the awareness has to be there. We have to bring this more to the light. We have to get the layperson understanding what a DDoS attack is so that we can take proactive measures against them. No, I think I think you mentioned right as BCP thirty eight source address validation. We were talking about egress filtering in the nineties as best practice. <laughs> people are like, eh, yeah. I care. It doesn't impact me, and maybe it doesn't because you're not the victim. And people got together and do stuff, and enough of the internet does, and then this genre of attacks goes away, right? You talk about botnets, yeah. and you're probably talking Mirai still, still, unfortunately, still. Mm-hmm. It's all these embedded devices being made by companies who have all sorts of experience making whatever the device was and just slap in a computer with a network connection and Linux on it and call it a day. And there's open telnet listening. If that community got together and saying, you know what, we're we're not going to listen on the open internet by default for services that we're never going to update because, you know, firmware updates are no joke, you know. I mean, that's the thing is, you've got to have like a kind of global come to Jesus moment, right? And everybody has to realize this. I mean, California has been on the front edge of some of the the cyber laws that are coming out, right? Where they're Mm -hmm. saying you must have best best effort at um, changing your default passwords and things like that. But But the reality is, is like IoT manufacturers, they're going to do the bare minimum because they want to get things out as cheaply and as efficiently and as fast as possible to the consumer. So they're not going to spend X extra years developing something that's super secure that nobody can get into. They're just going to flood the market with these things. And then you have other vendors that from different countries that don't really care, right? And, and they're just going to flood the market anyway. And there's no security on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a here's a sto- sobering statistic for you. The first DDoS attack on record was in 1973. Okay. 50 years ago, 
Yeah. We're talking 50 years of DDoS now. And in some of these different vectors that are out there, things that, man, why don't we have a solution for these? A good example, DNS query floods or DNS water torture. Um, non-existent subdomain requests, flooding a DNS server to shut it down, application layer attack. The very first instance of these was in 1997. And if you look at the threat intelligence report that we just recently published, you can see that that uh, attack methodology is inclining quite significantly right now. And in such a way that we have worked with many of our customers recently for these attacks, and they are significantly impacted by this attack vector that has been around for 26 years. And we still don't have a comprehensive global solution to take care of this outside of every person having some sort of DDoS mitigation service on-prem. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it makes sense. I mean, almost everything we deal with has been around for a long time in one way, shape or form. And part of it is just always gets worse. (laughs) You you wish it didn't, but the reality is, is sometimes I will say sometimes there is success and there is a little light glimmer of hope that keeps you going. Right. Um, a couple of examples recently that we've seen. One is the thing that I just mentioned, right? The source address validation um, is having a big impact. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, it means the adversary is also changing. They're using more direct path attacks to get around the fact that we're stopping the volumetric stuff. So now you got to deal with that conundrum. How do you stop those things? Because notoriously, they're pretty hard to stop anyway, because they look like legitimate connections. Um, on the other hand, there's there's other instances where you, again, see the community come together. Um, So a couple of recent vectors that have come up, SLP reflection amplification and TP240 or phone home amplification, however you want to call it. So the first one that came out probably, I want to say a year ago, TP240, first noticed that there was um, a port protocol that was being hit quite a bit. We didn't know what it was. Um, Some of our customers were reaching back to us. Some of the community was talking about this. Some researchers had sent us some packets and we started investigating this and what we found was quite frankly very concerning if this vector had blown up we would be talking about a ddos attack vector that can amplify traffic at a 4.3 billion to 1 ratio okay and if you were to manipulate the devices that are capable of doing this they would literally the attack would go for two weeks without stopping with no other interference by the adversary okay like potential was there to be really really bad Right. The cool thing here is, though, is that us, along with our peers, even some of our competitors, some of the big um, names in the ISP space came together and said, we've got to solve this. Um, there was a responsible disclosure out to Mitel. Mitel was the organization that had the PBX software that could be uh, exploited here. And Mitel's like, okay, we're aware of this. We're working on it. We're getting a patch. They were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Mitel literally got on, uh, they issued the patch. They got on the phone with every customer that they could find hey, you've got to patch this. You've got to patch this. So what we saw in the threat landscape was pretty interesting. When the attack was first kind of under reconnaissance, the adversary realized they could do this. You start to see, I don't know, 50 or 60 a day that you would see like probes, scans, these things come in. Um, And then you start to see a significant ramp, like, okay, now they're testing it. And we could very clearly see that in attacks against our customers. And then right around the time where the responsible disclosure happened, the blogs went out, adversaries hit it. And we went from like, a couple of dozen of these things a day to almost three or 400 attacks per day over the course of like a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so the adversary realized they could do this, but then the patch hit and then Mitel's on the phone, they're calling people. And then the very next couple of weeks, 
they just basically disappeared. The attacks went down to maybe a handful. And then now we're just seeing like the occasional handful of this come through. Um, so it was a very successful event. You had the community come together. You had the vendor working with responsible disclosure. And then that worked. So it shows that some of the things we do can have an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, the SLP stuff, same thing, working with different people, working with the community, working with other vendors, trying to figure out what's the best way, how do we put the best foot forward here? Um, and so in some cases it can work, but again, it has to be this joint thing. It can't just be one entity out there doing one thing. No, no. And I think that makes sense. And I, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm Irish, so I'm overly cynical and, and jaded, but I mean, <laughs> it's true. As, as we solve a problem, another problem's coming, Right. But the flip side is I was a latchkey kid in the 80s, right? I've got a short attention span. I like I like new problems. You know, the old problems going on for a long time is kind of boring, you know, but a related note, right? You know, sometimes sometimes there's a little bit of hopes of things that move forward. Uh, you know, I was talking to somebody at a conference a few weeks back who's in the empty spam space, right? Talk about how long that problem has been going on. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, is I mean, what about AI? How does that change the spam problem? <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it, people are like, oh, AI is going to fix cybersecurity. If AI and ML could fix cybersecurity, Bayesian filtering of spam would have worked. And it never did, right? The adversary has decades of experience fooling automated systems. The notion that we're going to beat that bench of experience anytime soon is, is arrogance, right? Um, it, it absolutely is. And then then when you turn it on the other side, and you realize that the adversary is also using AI and chat GPT and all these other things to generate their spam. So no longer do you have the, the telltale signs of foreign language typos, right? You, you can't tell that anymore. It just looks like a normal thing you would get from your bank. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, turn it around on the other foot. The adversary is smart. They know what they're doing. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and yeah, so I mean, things are always changing, but I mean, human beings have been killing and thieving and, and being brutal to each other in our earliest documented history. It's not going to change anytime soon. It's just now we do it with pixels. Exactly. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I found that has been really eye-opening here at, at you know, my current company is that visibility truly is the centerpiece for any of these cyber threats. Um, you know, it used to be that prevention was the thing, and it used to be that detection um, was part of that prevention, right? You want to be able to detect it as early as possible, but then you read things like the the Mandiant reports, and you you look at the dwell time, and you mm-hmm. see you think that the dwell time would eventually shrink to like next to nothing, but yet you still see them come out and say that the average dwell time is like eighty seven days. You're like, you mean an adversary has been literally sitting in my environment for two and a half months, and I haven't detected that? Why? right? Where, where is the gap here? And so when I look at what we get in the DDoS space and we see the visibility and we see the massive amounts of internet traffic, that's the key. Yeah. If you can get the visibility down into the backbone of your environment, an adversary can only compromise you for the most part through the internet. And so I guess my open-ended question, and I don't have an answer to this, is why is the dwell time still 87 days? Mm-hmm. I remember when it used to be 18 months. So, I mean, it's improvement. <laughs> it has improved, but yeah. man. <laughs> well, you know, the answer is the, the attackers adapt, right? One of the biggest elements of almost every sophisticated attempt, uh, sophisticated breach and attack is the use of PowerShell. And, you know, what's AV, EDR, all the kind of signature-based detection don't work really well on scripting engines. 
Right. Now, that's why Linux AV has never been much of a thing because most of the malware space in Linux is Perl, shell scripting, Python. That's all very few in the way of actually compiled executables. It's true. I mean, even if it wasn't scripting, there's still the human element you got to worry about, right? That somebody's going to click on something somewhere. Yeah, exactly right. Right. So, I mean, you know, here we are. Um, so, you know, ultimately it's a human problem, right? Is, is, you know, how do you detect between a benevolent and malicious human being? Well, if we're able to do that, con artists and swindlers and politicians, you know, <laughs> you know, would all be out of work, right? Is yeah. we solve this, this problem in meat space, you know, but here we are. Yeah, no, that, that's a great alliteration. So lots of people would be out of jobs if you could do that. Right. You know, but, you know, it's a it's a flawed society. We're flawed creatures. And uh, that manifests in technology that, you know, we're not going to be able to solve. Really, we, we could we could solve manifestations of it time to time with cooperation and make life suck a little bit less for some people. Right. But there's always going to be work. Yeah, no. And I think the work is fulfilling in and of itself, especially when you see how things mm -hmm. succeed, how they work. And when you get all the people coming together with the same mind to accomplish something for good, it, it, it works. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's always the thing that you put your heads together, you work really, really hard on something, and then you don't really see the fruit of your labor. That does happen. And sometimes it's discouraging. And, and I've seen that actually in the DDoS space. Um, back in December, um, they had, there was a big takedown, law enforcement, Interpol, a bunch of people got together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they took on like 56, 54, 56 booter stressor services. And then they arrested six individuals. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is, is does this have an impact? Because we have a global perspective on DDoS attacks, does it matter? And so we started investigating this. And when you look at the global scale of things, and you look at all of December, and you compare that to previous year's December, it didn't have an impact, mm -hmm. like barely fluctuated at all. The only place you could actually see the impact was a very specific one or two service providers in the US and in the EMEA. Mm -hmm. And that's because most of those attacks from those booter stressor services are broadband access user to broadband access user, but more isolated to um, ISP networks, where it's mostly users, right? Not content providers or anything like that. And so it had a very negligible impact. And I'm just thinking like how much time and effort went into seizing 56 booter stressor services arresting these individuals, all the paperwork, the law, you know, indictments and all that stuff only to have it be a non-effect. And oh, by the way, one of the security researchers that was part of that came back and said a week later that most of the things they had taken down had come back a week later with different names. Yeah. So sometimes it can be discouraging, but when you start to see things like the best current practices come into play and you start to see some of these little things that build on each other and add together, that can be fulfilling, but we just have to make sure that we're not discouraged by the setbacks because um, we're facing a smart adversary. And so we just have to continue at this until we see some traction. Yeah. And, you know, I want to think, you know, through the indictments I've been in, right. You know, Bogachev, he's still on the top, top 10 most wanted list. Um, you know, is a Russian citizen. We're never going to, we're never going to extradite him. Uh, Pyotr Levishov, uh, for the Kelly <laughs> botnet, right. You know, yep. uh, his, his girlfriend or wife wanted to take a trip to, you know, the Mediterranean. So we got him on a red notice, came here, 
basically took a plea deal, no time, and that was that. I mean, Kelly else hasn't come back, so I mean, I guess that's a win, you know, but the plea deal was somewhat discouraging, right? And I hope whatever, you know, cooperation they got from him warranted that kind of leniency. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, I love being part of indictments and, and takedowns, especially if you can get your hands on somebody, right? So sure. That, you might not see it from the bandwidth perspective, but if you can redirect the lives of these six, probably young people, you know, into more official ways, because I know many people, at least my age in the industry, you know, have some color background, right. You know, where, you know, they, they dangled with various shades of gray hats and then opted to, you know, be, you know, more you know, benevolent members of society. Right. I think I was like 10 years old selling bootleg software to public <laughs> back in the eighties. Um, you know, so obviously that gets you in much more trouble now. This is pre DMCA, but right. you know, the point remains the same. Hey, maybe you have an impact and for those people, get them on a better path because, you know, the stressor operators of today could be the botnet operators or advanced threats 10 years from now. It's not, especially with malware as a service, it's not that hard to go from DDoS as a service to ransomware as a service. No, absolutely. I mean, they're already intrinsically tied together in some cases for some of these operators. So yeah, absolutely. But no, that's, I mean, looking at it in terms of long-term impact on the lives of these people, it's, you know, not something we typically do, uh, but it's, it's a great point. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, but at the end of the day, right, we're, we're minting new criminals all the time. You know? So I don't know that we'll ever solve that problem. Right. But the same as problem of, you know, murder, rape, theft in meat space. Right. You can arrest somebody. They could be a great rehabilitation story. And tomorrow there's somebody else. And I mean, we see the rate at which some of the the real world stuff takes place. And then you look at the the virtual digital space and see how fast that's growing. It's only natural that threats continue to grow with the escalation, right? Yeah. So, I mean, good news, unlimited job security. <laughs> exactly. We'll have a job until we die. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know there'll, there'll be a new threat and there's always something new to focus on. I, you know, I forget when it was. You may remember it more. I had a DDoS working group, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. I went through genres of d different things of what I focused on in career DDoS was for a little while and then moved on to something else, right? You know, there's, right. there's always something new to do, uh, even if you focus for a couple of years on something and then move on. And I mean, that's the, the lifespan of a security researcher in this space is, is roughly three or four years before they move on to the next thing. And, and I mean, it's nice because you have the flexibility. And mm -hmm. essentially, you are in cybersecurity and in threat intelligence business, like pretty much go anywhere you want. Everybody's looking. Um, so, yeah, no, I agree there that the job security is there. Um, and it's also very intriguing. And mm -hmm. I think that even with a lot of these, these colleges and stuff having cybersecurity programs now, we're still at a lack of enough people to handle the threats. Um, and so, you know, for the next decade, we're going to be still looking for more and more cybersecurity researchers. I think yeah. that's just the nature of the threat. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, we were developing web apps and it took almost 10 years to get a WASP. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I'd have to look at the years because I think, you know, web applications, uh, PayPal emerged around 2003, a WASP and maybe 2011, 2010. So maybe seven years, seven, eight years. Sounds about right. Yeah. Right. So we're deploying, you know, chat GPT and related tools, you know, where's the OWASP for machine learning so that, you know, at least there are tools and resources to do it correctly. Uh, right. 
to bring it back to the IoT world. I, you know, where's where are the tools for these manufacturers to do things safely without a whole lot of effort? You know, yeah, use these I mean, libraries, use this distribution of Linux or what have you. Uh, what what happens when some of the the core databases for these chatbots get compromised and adversaries realize that all of these enterprises and people have put proprietary data to train the models mm-hmm. and now you've got your whole thing open. Um, I you know I was just using a tool recently and the tool is essentially a interface to do SQL queries into your backend um, mm-hmm. data lakes. Yeah. And they started offering AI to help you formulate your queries. But to do that, you have to actually share your table names and your database names. And so now anybody getting access to that, just guess what? If they're trying to do SQL injection, if they're trying to do all these other things, they know all of your table names. Right. And so now they can use that as a way to exploit. And, and you know, there's there's all kinds of security risks. But yeah, you're right. They're, they're, where is the OWASP for chat GPT and AI? Right. So, and I said, same thing, the IoT space. I mean, you're starting to have an automotive, right? That that one, we move quickly. And I think I talked about that in a previous podcast, right? After the Jeep Cherokee hacking with Andy Greenberg. Oh, I, right? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, they're like, and automobile manufacturers, like this problem is going to be measured in corpses. We're solving that. And then it was just this big mad rush to hire everybody uh, in that industry, but in other industries of like IoT stuff, you know, Mirai was what, DVRs? Um, the first, the first iteration of Mirai. DVRs, CCTVs. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, That's and now we're talking about IoT devices that have the same capacity and processing capabilities as servers ten years ago. So, <laughs> it's yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, no. So, I mean, it's 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 interesting. So, like any 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 parting thoughts, words of wisdom. You know, what do you you know what would you like people to take away from this conversation? I mean, I think the main thing is just keep doing this podcast, keep doing other things like blogs and mm-hmm. reporting and bring the message out there. Um, because I think that's going to be our biggest challenge as we continue to go. I mean, chat GPT hit and was there any knowledge ahead of time about what this entails in terms of threats? I don't, I don't remember reading anything about it. I, it was after the launch of chat GPT that, oh man, we should consider security aspects here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so was that a, just a, a lack of people understanding security in general and not realizing what this is going to have before you actually launch something? Um, so I think education is is just a missing piece. I mean, to be honest, in, in these day and age, like cybersecurity should be core curriculum in, in the high schools. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is something that every single person is so digitally connected these days. And I've never seen that more so than in the DDoS space because DDoS hits everything digitally connected. That we have to be aware that we are not safe from this. No matter where we are, no matter what device we have, no matter how good you are at your home security, what happens when you go and use a public Wi-Fi or a hotspot somewhere, or somebody visits your house and has a compromised IoT device? Right. You, all of these things require education, and there's so many people that just have no idea. Yeah. So, just awareness. I mean, that's that's the key for me. No, I think that's absolutely a good point, right? You know, to the IoT devices, these are manufacturers building things, right? Medical devices, right? There's bioengineering or whoever makes those devices. You know, it's until cybersecurity is in the minds of them. They don't have to be experts, but to know enough. It's like, hey, 
Do right. I really want this thing on the open internet? Or, you know, can I trust anything that it's being given? Right. To exactly. Make yeah. At least some of the high level decisions to be like, okay, I'm going to bring in a professional or I'm just not going to take on trusted inputs, you know, uh, to, right. to have some of that, at least high level knowledge instead of, you know, people who get their master's in cybersecurity and then get, uh, get certified. And then congratulations. Now you're qualified for SOC level one work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, this I think this is exactly where we need to go and what we need to be thinking about. All right. Well, with that, I will wrap it up. Thank you, Richard, again, for, for joining the podcast. Uh, to the rest of you, hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Death Labs podcast, where we talk about all things security research, uh, security and threat research, uh, sponsored by NetRich. Uh, we air every other Wednesday on all of the favorite podcasting platforms. So like, subscribe, or do whatever those platforms do and would appreciate it. Uh, have any questions or uh, ideas for future guests, please reach out. And with that, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks.